Whenever I get up here to speak, the most natural thing to say first is always good morning. And I realize I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Good morning. (laughs) All right. So I've been thinking about this verse a lot. And usually when something is going around my head, um, I try to see what the Lord's trying to say to me through that. And a lot of times then I preach from that. So this is the point that I started from. And as is typical, I ended up somewhere that I did not anticipate. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about this for a little bit, incorporate some other things into this, and then we're going to wrap back around at the end to this verse. So Luke 9.62 says, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. First of all, we'll just look at a little context around this. The preceding text, starting in verse 51, we see that Jesus is passing through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans there reject him because he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it looks like he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. And they don't really want any part of that. I mean, who wants to get behind someone who's just walking to their own death? So they reject him. We see Jesus submitting to the will of the Father, even when it is very, very difficult. The road ahead is hard, and all he gets from those following him are empty promises. And they sound like this. As they were walking along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another man, follow me. The man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead. You, however, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me bid farewell to my family. They were not willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus. And what was the cost? The cost was their loyalty, 100% of their loyalty. And none of them in this story were willing to pay that cost. And this harkens back to 1 Kings chapter 19, where we see the call of Elisha. So Elisha is plowing in the field with the oxen, and Elijah walks by, and it says that he casts his cloak on Elisha. And Elisha says, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah permits him to do this. This is a type and a shadow. It shows us that following Jesus is by far the greater, and it takes precedence over every aspect of our practical lives, because these people are not permitted to go and bury the dead. Jesus says, let the dead attend to the business of the dead. You are alive. As for you, you go and you proclaim the kingdom of God. That's your job. So this is an indicator of a whole new paradigm. Jesus, he wants you. He wants your very life. And you are to be the living sacrifice that Paul talks about in Romans 12. You are to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So already, the context surrounding Luke 9.62, we're seeing these mentions of what is the Great Commission, proclaiming the kingdom of God. So remember that, because it's really important to what this means. Um, Just this verse itself, Jesus is using an agricultural reference here. 
and his hearers would have understood it well. The one guiding the plow has to keep his eyes forward if he is to keep the furrow straight. And when he looks behind at something that attracts him, he's only half working. And even that half effort quickly amounts to nothing because the results are not fit. This is a representation of a divided heart and a lack of loyalty. Sometimes I even wonder for myself, when I put work into something, I wonder, have I exhausted myself by doing this half-heartedly, by not fully committing to something? Have I just spun my wheels? I think a lot of people feel like that sometimes. So looking at the following text, immediately following Luke 9.62 begins chapter 10 of Luke in our Codex Bibles, and it is the sending out of the 72. Uh, BJ has talked a lot about um, the nations, and the sending out of the 72 by Jesus here is a reference, it's representative of the nations in Genesis 11 that were dispersed over the whole earth. So what we're seeing here is symbolic of Jesus saying, go into all the world and proclaim the kingdom of God. What's the first thing that Jesus says when he sends out the 72? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we have this reference to the nations. We have reference to the harvest here. And back in the preceding story about people not willing to pay the cost, we have the reference to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And I think all of this context here tells us that the work of the Great Commission is some of the most important work that we lay our hands to as the church. It is our job. It is the work that we have to do and the time that we have. So as I thought about this, who's a great example of of this? Who has really laid their hand to the plow and showed us how to do this? Well, Paul, he's always good to look at, right? He even tells us, here I am, do what I do, you know, imitate me. So let's take a look at Paul and some different things here. So Paul is writing here in Ephesians chapter 3. If we want to understand what motivated Paul, it's important to understand his worldview and the way that he thought about his things, about different things. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before briefly. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to mankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So first thing here, there's something that Paul could not see before. There's something that was previously hidden, and now it is not. Now it has been revealed. And Paul says of this thing, There was made known to me a mystery, as I wrote before briefly. So we don't know of any previous letter that was written to the Ephesians. We think what we know right now is that this is the only one. So what's Paul talking about, as I wrote before briefly? He's talking about the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. He wouldn't have called them chapters, but he's saying, refer back to what I've already written. This is my unpacking of the mystery 
that previously was not revealed. And if you read the first two chapters of Ephesians, they are very extremely dense. They're very foundational to all of our Christian beliefs. There's a lot of really amazing stuff in there. So Paul says that by referring to what I wrote before, when you read it, you are going to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul uses this word revelation right here, and then he uses revealed right here. And Paul had a revelation. He had an apocalypse. Ever since I figured out what this word meant, I've had so much fun thinking about and picturing this, the apocalypse. I love this word because it has so much gravity. It's like such a big deal word. And uh, so let's break that down a bit. Um, In the Greek, so this English word that's translated revelation or revealed is uh, in Greek, I'm going to try to say this correctly, apocalypsis. You have to put the right emphasis in the right syllable. Apocalypsis. And this is just, uh, this is the Greek word for our English word apocalypse. And when we think of the word apocalypse, our contemporary English, that word tends to mean end of the world type stuff. That is not what Paul means when he says apocalypse. Uh, The original meaning of this word is literally to uncover or reveal something. So if you were to have a blanket over something and you pull it back, that thing has now been apocalypsed. And it also has metaphorical meaning to reveal. And this is like if you encounter an idea or new knowledge that you've never had before that is all of a sudden apparent to you, it appears to you, that knowledge has been apocalypsed. Associated ideas with apocalypse are illumination, light, and new knowledge. So Paul had a revelation. He had an apocalypse, not an end-of-the-world type stuff, But think of it more as like end of the world as you know it. Nothing is ever the same after you have this apocalypse like Paul did. This revelation of something he didn't see before. And what he's talking about here in Ephesians 3 is the apocalypse for Israel, for the Gentiles, for all of creation. He's talking about the revelation on this grand scale. This is what the coming of Jesus Christ means for all things. And this is not the only place that he uses it. So we see here, something new is happening. And it's happening through the Spirit. This is not the only place that Paul talks about his apocalypse. He also experienced this apocalypse in a more personal way. And understanding what that looked like is really important for understanding what motivated Paul It was tremendously important for the work that he did that he had this revelation, this apocalypse. Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to apocalypse his son and me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So 
this apocalypse is so hidden to Paul in his previous life that he's persecuting the followers of Jesus. He's, in fact, zealous to do that. Now, Paul's on the right track as far as he's concerned. He's advancing in Judaism, and he has zeal for the traditions of his fathers. But he had no idea that he had been set apart for something completely different until it was revealed to him, until it was opened up to him. And it says that it was revealed so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Doesn't that sound a lot like going and proclaiming the kingdom of God? I mean, this is Paul laying his hand to the plow. He's going to go and proclaim the kingdom to the Gentiles. So Paul recounts the story of his meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus three times in Acts. And each time is just a little different. So we'll look at the final account, which is in Acts 26. And in this account, he actually includes some details that he leaves out previously from the other accounts. In this account, he says that Jesus tells him, I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. To light. You see that apocalyptic reference there? From darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is being sent out. He's being set apart to help others have the apocalypse that he had. His personal apocalypse changed his entire worldview, and it was tremendously important to his work for the kingdom. Once he had it, his natural reaction was, well, you got to have it, (laughs) because it's incredible. I want you to have it. And so now that's the motivation for my entire life. So to understand all of that, to understand his motivation, I think it's good to look at his worldview. And since it's Paul's worldview, it is a biblical worldview. Just to give you a refresher, how we get to this point, remember Genesis. Humans were created, and they walked with God, subduing creation alongside him. They were a united family. Rebellion brought an end to that unity, and it separated heaven and earth and God and humans. But God has always had a plan to reconcile us back to him. That's the background. So, slide one of Paul's worldview. Paul identifies two ages. He identifies this age, which is the one that we live in now, and the one that Paul lived in, and the age to come. Um, This is not a uniquely Christian idea. Um, The Hebrews had this idea. Paul had this idea before his apocalypse. They've always understood that there was this age, and that there was going to be a new one to come. Let's talk about what characterizes each age. This age is characterized by evil and sin, death, slavery to the powers, violence, violent people committing violence on the earth, and curse. This is your Old Testament. (laughs) This is all the yucky stuff that Judges talks about, and all of those things that we need redemption from. That's what characterizes this age. Then, Paul believed that there was going to come a moment, a moment in time, 
that was going to transition this age into the one to come. The Old Testament prophets called this the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. And the characterization of the day of the Lord is divine justice. So the day of the Lord brings punishment for the wicked, and it brings resurrection for the righteous, celebration for the righteous. Those are the characterizations of the day of the Lord. So this is what Paul expected. And you can see that in Malachi 4. We talked about that about a month ago. So the age to come. As we continue to build out, we'll see that every negative element of this age is reversed. It's done away with in the age to come. So instead of evil and sin, we have justice and love. Instead of death, you have eternal life. Instead of slavery to the powers, you have the freedom of God's people and the new creation. Instead of violence on the earth, you have shalom. And instead of curse, we come back into blessing. So, all of this, all of what you see is established by your Old Testament. And this was Paul's framework before he had his apocalypse. Previously, he saw the resurrection as something that happened to definitively transition into the age to come and out of the old age. That is not how it turned out. This is where Paul's worldview gets just totally wrecked. What ended up happening? Oh, there's an overlap. There's an overlap between the age that we live in and the age to come. Paul did not expect that. Remember, he expected that moment of transition. He certainly didn't expect this, but he could not deny it. Why could he not deny it? It's because he met the risen Jesus. <laughs> he knew that Jesus had died, and then he met him on the Damascus road. He said, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. So he couldn't deny that this age to come element happened right in this age, and that it didn't consume the old age, but instead it was this tremendous burst of light in the darkness. It was this tremendous birth of new creation right in this age, right in the old age, happening right here. It didn't consume the old, but it was like this burst of light and life. And Paul was convinced that that was true, but also that it wasn't the end. Um, but that Jesus' resurrection was a preview of the full transition between this age and the age to come. So just to point out right now, Paul lived here. And so do we. We live in that period between the resurrection and the return. So you can also think of this with the words like this. You can think of it as when at Jesus' death and resurrection, the day of the Lord and the age to come were inaugurated. And at the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord and the age to come will be consummated. Another way to describe this is to say that we're living right here 
in the now, not yet. If you want to describe this in spatial terms, you can call this age the realm of earth and the age to come the realm of heaven. So, I like that verbiage. We're living in the now, not yet. And the most important part, do you see Jesus up there? He's up here. (laughs) He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, and all things are in subjection to him. And we're up there with him in the heavenlies. It's in this framework, this worldview of the now, not yet, that uh, we can use the language of the not yet to describe the right now, like in Ephesians 2, where Paul says that we're raised up and we're seated with the ruling Messiah and the new creation. Paul talks about like, like it's happening right now. And this is the reason why we can do that and we can talk about that, because we're living in the now, not yet. Um, another cool way to describe this kind of use this picture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, now these things happened to them, Israel, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Some translations use the singular. It says end of the ages, but the correct understanding is ends of the ages. And it's pretty simple. Paul is talking about two ends. He's talking about a back end and a front end. Right here and right here. The ends of those ages have come upon us. That's a pretty great time to be alive. It's pretty incredible that we get to be here right now. So I think this is a lot of what Paul spent three years after his transformation absorbing. It was such a deconstruction of the way he understood everything. It's like he had to rebuild his worldview entirely, and it just influenced him for the rest of his life. And he just, he gave up everything. He considered it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. It had an incredible effect on him. So this is a biblical worldview, and this is a story that the Bible tells. When we see everything through this revelation, nothing is the same. It's like you don't even have to purpose to sit down and think about how you're going to work this out in your life. You just look at it, and it begins to make implications for you. You begin to think, ooh, that means this for the way I parent my kids. Ooh, that means this for my marriage, for what I do at my job, for what I do in my church. For what I do with my time, my money, everything, it, it just automatically makes an application for us. So, kind of painted this picture to show you a slightly different one. What's the story of the Bible as the church at large has frequently told it? <clears throat> so I'm going to explain this diagram. The story of the Bible as the church has frequently told it. I feel like this is what the church a lot of times has condensed all of the import of the biblical story down to. Now, at first, this doesn't really look like a worldview. It's just a basic salvation message. 
But in a way, I do think it's become the church's worldview. So let me explain that. What you're seeing here is you have a holy, righteous God. And then you have sinful human beings. And that's not going to work, right? That's been our problem all along. So then you have the cross. We have to come to the cross, and we have to make a decision. And based on that decision at the cross, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. You go to the good place or you go to the bad place. This is true. (laughs) This is true. And, And people need to know this. But I think that sometimes this becomes the church's worldview. And as we look out on the world, we just divide people into two batches. You're saved, so you're good. You don't need anything else. These people, they need a whole bunch else. But you can't stop here. You have to teach people about the kingdom. You have to teach people about being in the kingdom of God, being a part of God's family business. You can't just stop with this. You can't just say, okay, well, you're good. You have your heaven punch card. Make sure that you present it at the gate so that you can get in. And you don't need anything else. Oh my gosh. This is like looking at an elephant with a microscope. You're missing out on how the elephant uses its trunk, how it has complex relationships within its family, how it moves, what it looks like. You're just, you're missing so much of the kingdom. So yes, this is true, but it gets absorbed into the bigger picture. I hope that makes sense. This is true. We need to tell people this. But we can't stop with just that. We've got to train people, disciple people in the kingdom to take their place there. Very, very important. So the main problem, as far as I see it, with locking all the import of biblical worldview into this first model here is that it takes all the effect, all the gravity, and all the importance of your salvation, which is very important, and it delays it until you die. So you've got this great thing. You've made a decision for Jesus, and it's very important, but it's only important when you die because it's all about just getting to heaven. I think that's a problem. I really do. I think it's a problem because that's not the way it is. Um, When I look at the biblical or the complete model, the one that we just went through, when I look at this, it brings the effect, the gravity, and the importance of your salvation to every moment of your life. And this is the way it should be. That should have an effect right now on everything that you do. Every day is an opportunity for you to show your allegiance to what's fading away, earth and the old age, or to what is advancing, heaven and the age to come. Every day, all of your choices have gravity. You're either proclaiming the kingdom or you're not. I I think that's pretty motivating. That's pretty sobering. It makes me think about how I live my life. I think that's the way we should think. Um, The complete model shows us that we don't have to succumb to evil, that we're no longer slaves, but that we have all the freedom and power of heaven to overcome evil. When you look at these two side by side, when you look at them, 
Which one do you think communicates and motivates people to put their hand to the plow? The one that tells them that this is important when you die, or the one that tells you that this is important every day, all the time, that right now you are living as the new creation, ruling and reigning with the Messiah? It's the second one. It's just what it is. Um, God's gift to us in Jesus is free. It's free in the sense that we didn't earn it. We can't pay for it. We can't pay our own debt. Remember, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But the gift does have a reciprocal nature when we accept it. The idea that we respond to God when he gives us the gift is all over Scripture. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and Jesus himself will judge the works that we have done. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What, what's the response to such a gift? If you can't repay it, if you can't pay for it, how do you respond to that? The answer is you give all of it. You just give all of it. You give all of your heart. You give all of your loyalty. And when you do that, you become this walking, talking, burning, living sacrifice for the Lord. That's the response. When you see how the beauty of the gift that you've been given. And usually, if someone were saying this to me right now, this is about the point where I would feel condemned. (laughs) Where I would feel like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough living sacrifice. And if that is what you're feeling right now, stop. Because that voice of condemnation is not from the Lord. I like to think about what Paul says at the end of Philippians 3. He says, he says, look, I know I'm not perfect. I have not attained to perfection, and I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I have. But I do know one thing. I am forgetting what lies behind me, and I am pressing on to what lies ahead. <laughs> and he says, if you think you're perfect, you've got a lot of maturing to do. And you're going to find out, you will be shown that you are not And in really typical Paul fashion, he recognized that what he just said is something that somebody could look at and go, oh, well, I'm not perfect, so I'm just going to do whatever. I'm just going to do whatever feels good. So he reins it back in, and he says a very important piece. He says, however, we must live up to what we have attained. What that means is when you see and you know something to be right by God, When you know and you see something to be wrong, just make the correct choice. When you see something to be right by God, just do it. And when you know that it's not, don't do it. Um, Stay the course. Stay the course and do the things that you know to be right by God. And he will guide you. Remember, he watches over the path of the righteous. He will make your path straight. He is faithful. You just have to face the correct direction. And he'll reveal things to you. He'll reveal truth to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. So be faithful. Don't be condemned. It's a process, and we all grow. So I think when people stop here, when they just say, I'm in, when they stop there, I see sleepy Christians. 
because they have no purpose. The purpose has been accomplished. I have fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. And uh, Christians with no purpose, I think, is tragic. It's awful. It is awful. And uh, I don't want to see people with no identity just living out their days and hoping that they eventually make it to heaven. Oh, that is not the radiant church. It's just not. The reality of this, the reality of living right here and the now not yet, is that we're living on grace. And someday, that period's going to end. Remember, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord to send more laborers. How in the world can you make more laborers without explaining to them that there is something to work for? We have to tell people there's something for you to do. There's a purpose and meaning for your life. You're in the kingdom now, and this is what we're doing. This is the track we're on. And it's like BJ talked about last week. He talked about bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. There's a limited time for that. Like, that's our business. That's what we've got to be working out. So this summer, um, I read a book. I read a lot of books, but this summer I read a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's by Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist, and he was also a prisoner in four different Nazi concentration camps. And um, it was so cool that I just read this book, and I felt like it just fit perfectly with these two models. As I've looked at the two models, it seems to me that stopping at the first model reinforces an appeal to a certain idea about what motivates people. During Frankel's time, the prevailing theory was a Freudian one, and Freud believed that the primary motivation of man was to find pleasure and at least to avoid pain. That was Freud's idea. Frankel's idea is different, and I think he's correct. He thinks that man's primary motivation is the discovery and the pursuit of meaning for his life. I think that is so true. I think that's the way that we were designed by God, to desire purpose and meaning because we were created with purpose and meaning. So when I look at these side-by-side models, I feel like this one appeals to people in a way that says, you want pleasure, not pain. So here's the message. But what people really need is purpose and meaning in their lives. That's what they are after. They might try to fill it in a lot of different ways, but you can't. You can't satisfy that without God. You can't satisfy that apart from him. He's the one that created you that way. And I just think about, this made me think about how guards in concentration camps would punish people and abuse people by making them move one pile of big rocks one by one across a distance and put them all in another pile until they were all moved. Once they were all moved, they would make them one by one, pick them up, and move them back to where they started. And that was how they spent their day back and forth. It broke their bodies, but more importantly, it broke their spirit because it was so meaningless. There was no purpose in it. It was just like, that's torture to human beings. And when I think about that, I think about how many people does the enemy break with purposelessness? How many Christians does he stifle by 
meaningless stuff. I mean, have you ever heard of the rat race? People get so caught up in it, they're never able to come up above that, out of that, to even start to think about, what's the meaning of all this? What am I even doing here? What's the purpose for my life? You know, they need this message that God does have a purpose for their life. Life is more than living through another birthday that you really don't want to celebrate anyway. And it's more than hoping that this paycheck gets you through to the next one. It's more than a series of Sundays where people just go to church and they feel good for a day. It's so much more than that. Absolutely, people need to hear the basic gospel. They need to hear about that holy and righteous God. And they need to hear about their condition as a human being in the world without him. Because it is treacherous. That's foundational. We have to share that with people. But they also need to hear an explanation of the kingdom of God that invites them to be a part of God's family business. They have to hear that. They have to be discipled in that. Because they need that purpose and meaning. And it fulfills all of it. God is good, right? Yep. He, he fulfills us. That's what he does. He's wonderful. Let's pray. Lord, it, your gift to us is just indescribable. It's incredible that we get to be a part of the family business. I pray that you would help us to cast off the things that distract us from that. Help us to be bold. Give us a increasing revelation of this truth, Lord of why you put us here. Show us the practical ways to work this out. Show us the practical ways to proclaim your kingdom in our world today, Lord. We want to do it your way. We know that you have all the wisdom in the world, Lord, that you have all the power to make all of this happen, Lord. So we just, we just come to you and offer ourselves to you for that very purpose, Lord. We thank you that your kingdom is at hand. Thank you for your obedience and that you made that happen. You are awesome. May we do it this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.